mention it. Yeah. My name is Dane. And I'm Kevin. Oh, that was quick. That was a quick little. Yeah. And I'm Kevin. A quick yeah. little staccato you know what? interjection. You know what? It's, 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 it was pretty much like, I mean, might as well say it quick because obviously I'm the other guy if you're Dane. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Goes without saying. Um, yeah. So this is episode 25 of the yeah. Now That You Mentioned It podcast. Wow. We, you know what? We've been trying. We haven't even been like marking like noting what episode that but yeah this is episode 25 yeah this is episode 25 and today for the main segment of the show we are talking about the noam chomsky opus manufacturing consent which is on the media right um but before that how are you kevin i'm doing well i'm doing well um pretty pretty decent week for me you know, yeah. chilling. That's about it. Same old shit. How, yeah. Since, uh, I mean, you might not be the best person to ask because your lifestyle hasn't changed that much since you were always a work from home dude. Mm-hmm. What do you, what, when, do, when are you showering? <laughs> uh, I shower as often as I normally do. Okay. So what, what are your, what are your shower habits? Like how um, often are we talking? When are we talking? Are you a morning guy, night guy? I, I take at least like two to three a day. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, I can respect that a lot. Yeah. Um. So I definitely take one when I get up in the morning. Or, yeah, right in the morning. Well, technically when I get off of work because I work late. So technically when I get yeah. off work, it's, it's morning time. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I take a shower then, um, but then throughout the day, like depending on you know if I work out or whatever, you know it's like it's a shower. Throwing another yeah, one. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It got to be clean. I yeah I, I get that. I used to be in the like the sometimes a three a day thing, mm, mm-hmm. but I think my uh, I, w- I was drying out my skin. You know you know oh, me and my yeah, skin, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the dry skin, yeah. the <laughs> yeah, the perennial dry right. skin. So I think I had to I had to ease back on like the three showers a day. But like, yeah, I need to shower in the morning when I wake up, especially like when I have regular work hours or if I'm like, you know, hop on the train to go to work. Right. Can't be yeah. just like rolling out of bed yeah, and of like hopping on the train. Got to take a shower. But then like, especially if I'm in the city or whatever, like after I'm in the city, I come home like I'm not just going to like plop into bed. Of course not. <laughs> so like that, so you're so you're at like a minimum of two showers right there, yeah. and then sometimes you even need the three oh, if yeah, you yeah. work out or something yeah. like that. You definitely yeah. need you definitely need the two if you're in New York City. You you definitely like coming home yeah. from wherever. Like you don't even have to be going to work. You could go out to 
you know, meet up with somebody at a fucking bar and then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going. I'm not going straight to bed. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Definitely. <laughs> no, not just not just plopping down. But I ask because now that I'm just purely at home. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not really seeing the the necessity of getting up in the morning and right before I log on to fucking Zoom, I like need to hop in the shower. And then it's like, so when do I shower? You know what I mean? You know what actually I have been doing? I haven't really told this to anyone, but I've been I've been delaying the gratification of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like I find that like if I can go the full day, like if I wake up, I have to be on working online at like nine. Uh, then I have like a little lunch. Then I have to work again in the afternoon online. If I can hold off on the shower until like way in the evening or whatever, it feels, if, it feels you know better. what I mean? Like I go through the whole day. Yeah. 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 Like you download the dirtiness. You, you get like more bang for your buck. Right. I and then you. afterwards you're totally refreshed. I feel you. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I'm. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Um, I think for me, I do some of my best thinking in the shower as well. Ooh. And so I'm sort of eager to take a shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that in that regard. Because like yeah, most of the titles of this podcast have been developed in the shower. The shower titles? Yeah. Yeah. Fire. Yeah. So yeah, but no, but I've been also thinking like I probably smell pretty bad right now. Like I went for a walk. <laughs> I went for a walk this morning. Like I was like, should I shower before I record with Kevin? I was like, nah, let me hold off on it. So I'm doing the very I'm doing that thing yeah, right now. Yeah, I feel you. You're living it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I, um, I took a shower for everyone. You you shower? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I'm wallowing. You might say I'm wallowing. Wallowing. I smell pretty good. I, old spice deodorant. New, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, what do, yeah. do people do? People use other deodorants. Men. I've seen. I've went like I've seen. Like when I like I've had roommates forever. Like mm-hmm. cats, cats aren't just fucking with the old spices. Like I remember, really. I, one time I saw like Degree, and I was like, "Wait, or is that a women's one? I don't know." I mean, I like, saw like you oh the Arm and Hammer joint, and I was like, "Huh?" <laughs> the bacon soda. <laughs> yeah, the bacon soda deodorant. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. no, no, Old Spices is, is really the vibe. That's, For sure, that's it's the that's the vibe to me. Like, yeah, I, I don't what else you can wear? Axe, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, like there's nothing else out there. I'm not. Yeah, fucking I'm not. A, I'm not a year old fucking you know kid yeah. from Hermosa Beach. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, and I'll, I'm not a cologne guy. Are you a cologne guy? No, no. I get migraines, and so like, <clears throat> so like harsh scents. Fragrance, fragrance, anything like that, like give me a fucking headache, yeah. straight up. So yeah. yeah, I've never been a cologne guy. Some every now and then I'm like, maybe I should, but then I'm like, eh. nah. like, do you really need it if you wash with fucking soap, like, and then you put on the deodorant? Right. What do you? Right. What do you? So you, so all of a sudden you put on the <laughs> cologne after that, you're rocking with like a medley of different scents. Like what? Is, plus Bro, I wear like moisturizer, so that smells nice. Bro, like what the is, fuck? Is cats you walk by? OD with the cologne in the, I don't like get it's it. so wild, bro. Like you I can smell it. you can smell cats from like down the street. What's wild is the cats who use it as like a fucking status symbol. They're like, oh, oh I yeah, got the, 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 the yeah, noir. Yeah. This shit is five hundred dollars <laughs> a fucking squirt. 
<laughs> like, okay, bro, you just sprayed it in your armpits right, or whatever. Like, right. fuck out of so, here. So, yeah. yeah. That's trash. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't yeah. fuck with it. I, I can't fuck with cologne. Like, my uncle, growing up, my uncle used to, like, spray the, like, <laughs> the most absurd amount of cologne <laughs> every single morning, bro. Like, literally every morning. Um, and it would just be, it would be wild. It would be wild, like, hearing him. He worked, he worked uh, for the post office. And it would be wild, like, hearing him early in the morning, getting ready for work, and you just hear, He's like, oh, God, yeah. damn. Yeah, in the interval, you're like, oh, he's got to be done right now. Yeah, but then he no, no, and then it's yeah. another one. Right, it's another wave. It's another wave coming. <laughs> like it's so crazy. Like a fucking, you need like a. It would be like a layers. cloud. It would be like a cloud of cologne. <laughs> he would walk through, like dead. Yeah. No, bro. Like, oh my god. Oh, holy shit! All right, so we actually do have a not extemporaneous uh fucking opening segment right which is about elon musk right so not to sound like a hipster about elon musk but i feel like i've been suspicious of of this dude for a while and then once he started tweeting about how he was gonna like reopen the factory despite the shelter in place order and free America and all this and that and claiming fascism. I was like, okay, this, this shit has got it has got to stop. Um, you know, like the more sensational trolling shit he does, like with his kid's name, I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but like the shit where he's like saying that these public health orders are fascist that really got me to like okay i need to do a deep dive on this dude um and kind of just dismantle him because there's this myth of elon musk that he's this self-made brilliant innovator inventor engineer and that he's really concerned with you know saving humanity going to mars renewable energy this that and the other thing and really like none of that survives scrutiny at all and also the 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 idea that he's like self-made is doesn't survive scrutiny at all. So the the reason the reason I want to to like do this dismantling thing is because um I actually think the myth of him being the self-made dude is like actually it's not innocuous. It actually is kind of harmful and insidious because um it perpetuates this idea of, you know, like what we talk about all the time, the meritocracy, bootstrapism, you can do it tooism. So it's like if this dude can just become a multi-billionaire off of just some hard work and perseverance, then then everyone can. And there's no excuse for people who don't do it. So I want to start with this idea that he's he's self-made. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> he, he grew up and it, it gets ridiculous, bro. He grew up um, – Really, really privileged in a place called Pretoria in South Africa. Mm. His dad owned an emerald mine in Zambia. Okay. And just in case you're like, okay, well, maybe his dad like worked hard to get the money from the emerald mine. Elon Musk's dad was a pilot. He was flying a plane from South Africa to England with the intention of selling the plane when he arrived in England, right? Turns out for whatever contingency, they had to they had to land elsewhere. Like they were going to land in Saudi Arabia midway, but they were like, let me land um, in, uh, I think, Tanzania or something like that. It was total happenstance. And when they were in that place that they landed in, mm-hmm. 
they came across uh, they came upon this group of like Italian nationals that offered to buy the plane then and there. So they were like, oh, let me just do this now. They were looking for a plane. Total coincidence. So Errol Musk, Elon Musk's dad, sells the plane for like eighty thousand pounds or whatever currency. Mm. Now after that transaction goes through, Italian dude is like. Hey, do you want to invest in this emerald mine with me? <laughs> Literal happenstance. And Errol Musk is like, okay. So he invests 40K of the 80 he just made off the plane for a half ownership stake in the Zambian emerald mine. And in the words of Errol Musk himself, he did an interview with Business Insider. He says, so I became a half owner of the mine and we got emeralds for the next six years. And I couldn't really find much on like how much that mine actually result, like how much profit that actually made. But he said like they'd sell one gem to Tiffany's for like $25,000, one gem. Wow. This is a direct quote from, from Errol Musk. We were very wealthy. We had so much money at times we couldn't even close our safe. So it was in this environment that young Elon grew up. Now, I, that alone doesn't dismantle the self-made myth, but I think we got to follow it through to the conclusion because he invested $30,000 of his dad's money in his first company, Zip2, which then sold for like $300 million and he made $22 million off of that. Mm -hmm. So from the jump, yeah. luck, not grit. Luck, of luck. Then, so he made, so now he's like worth twenty two million off the sale of that first uh, company, Zip Two. He took that ten million, invested it into a site called X dot com, which later merged with a Peter Thiel company, and it became PayPal. And PayPal IPO'd in two thousand two. eBay bought it that same year after it IPO'd for one point five billion. Elon Musk made a cool one eighty million off of that. So it's not a story of hard work and determination. It's a story of well luck and well-placed investments. Right. Also, Elon Musk did not found Tesla. Tesla was founded by two actual engineers, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpening. Um, and then Elon Musk just invested like $6 million in the Series A round of investment. Also, Elon Musk is not an engineer or a scientist. Mm -hmm. He did two days of a PhD in physics. Right. Two days. Right. Two days. So, like, if I did two days at medical school, Kev, would that make me a fucking doctor? In Elon Musk's world, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, he invested the six million in the um, in the Series A of Tesla. He has a nineteen percent stake in Tesla today, and he today he's worth about thirty six billion. Elon, his stake in Tesla is thirty billion. So, what do we? Well, it's totally irresponsible to be out here talking like he's just this pulled himself up by the bootstraps kind of dude. He's lucky. Of course. And, I mean, and riding the wave. And that's and that's most people. Like, I think if you go back to um, Jeff Bezos, I think Bezos, his dad was able to give him, you know, a large lump sum for an investment. I mean, like just having that privilege to begin with is exactly what these cats need in order to like make that type of money like you aren't just coming out with like some random idea and you can just get it off the ground and turn it into a billion dollar company like that like it's just not that's impossible you have to have capital in order to do stuff like that 
And so with uh, Elon Musk is like a prime example of someone who had capital, who grew up with access to capital and having that access gave him the ability to have excess capital. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. And, and so even, even if he were like self-made what even I, though I don't think that's actually a thing. Um, even if he were all of those things that he's not like a, a brilliant scientist, engineer, innovator, whatever, there would be so many reasons to not exalt this dude. And I just outlined a few of them. So one is that Elon Musk has consistently squashed any and all attempts at unionization at his Tesla factories. Um, in 2019, a California judge ruled that like a dozen actions taken by Tesla were unlawful and su- such as like they would let the security guards harass any worker who was passing out a union pamphlet, banning any anybody who wore like a pro-union t-shirt or a sticker. Uh, intimidating union organizers, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing, right? Mm-hmm. His Elon, Number two, Elon Musk's whole empire, SpaceX, Tesla, is funded by $5 billion in government subsidy. <laughs> $5 billion. So the taxpayer is basically footing the bill for a larger Corporate, corporate welfare. Right. Um, an, an LA Times article said that Tesla and SpaceX benefited from quote an estimated 4.9 billion in government support. Um, yeah, Tesla hasn't really turned a profit yet, and they don't make money by selling cars. They actually make money by selling carbon credits to other car companies that don't make electric cars because state laws in certain states require that states meet a certain amount of like rent of carbon neutral cars and if they don't make them then they have to buy the excess carbon credits that eat that tesla has mm. so for the most part up until recently tesla had not turned a profit at all and they were mostly making their money from their car sales th- not even th- not through car sales through these carbon credits mm-hmm. there's this there's this interesting idea that i feel like you will like kevin and i came across it this is this is probably the least scientific part of my musk presentation but there's this idea that he's not really in the business of selling stuff mm-hmm. he's really in the business of manufacturing hype and so tesla is more accurately described as a ponzi scheme disguised as an auto manufacturer where musk has to keep unveiling new products many of which will never actually come to market mm-hmm. in order to raise new capital right. and this this dope quote went Tesla has, quote, found a way to address society's fascination with green technology and the next Steve Jobs. Elon Musk eagerly stepped into the role of mad scientist and investors gave him a free pass. It now increasingly seems that everything he's done for the past few years was simply designed to keep the share price up, keep the dream alive and raise more capital as opposed to actually creating shareholder value. <laughs> yeah. And I really like that yeah. idea. Yeah, I could I could definitely get with that um, because, well, think about. Think about Amazon as well in the same regard that these companies operate at a loss, like the ability to be able to operate these types of companies at a loss. Like, what does that do to the rest of the market? How does that depress, you know, other, you know, uh, marketplace sites or whatever where you could buy shit? Um, How does that affect other companies that are trying to? develop electric cars and bringing the, and actually being able to bring those to market. Like the, the fact that that Tesla or Musk via Tesla is able to operate like this 
is just <laughs> it just shows you like that this whole like free market idea is bullshit and that there is no equal opportunity on the market <laughs> or in the marketplace rather. Yeah. And, and, and a, a couple things that I looked into, which would sort of point to this theory being true, this one I thought was hilarious. So like a couple years ago, he went on Twitter, Elon Musk went on Twitter to announce that he had um, gotten approval to build this, what he calls a hyperloop. Do you yeah, yeah, remember yeah. that? Yeah. The like the super fast train that would go from like New York to DC in like t- 20 minutes. Right. So, so he, he goes on Twitter and he says this exactly. Um just received verbal government approval for the Boring Company, one of his companies that's you know making all the tunnels, to build an underground New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, DC hyperloop, NY to DC in 29 minutes. End of his tweet. Right. Then journalists did the important work of actually contacting the spokespeople at the relevant like city and state authorities, mm-hmm. um, and like looking into the veracity of of Elon Musk's tweet, and the government officials just laughed. And I just got I just got to quote I just got to quote some of these people. An official from Philly said, "Elon Musk has had no contact with Philadelphia officials on this matter. We do not know what he means when he says he received verbal government approval." <laughs> uh, a spokesperson for the New York mayor's office said, "Nobody in the city hall or any of our city's agencies has heard from Mr. Musk." The, the New York State Department of Transportation did not give verbal approval for a hyperloop. Baltimore, same thing. Philly. Or no, I already said Philly. Baltimore, same thing. DC, same thing. Hype. Hype. He's a con man, really. He's really like um he's, okay. he's Trumpian in that in that regard. He, he really is. He really is. He slaps his name on something or pushes this idea of hype and just Yeah. And it's just that's all it is. Yep. yep. Um okay, another issue to not fuck with Elon Musk. He his factories face like serious serious safety issues with elon musk has been really which elon musk has been really really duplicitous about handling so in 2017 they had like a 30 percent uh th- they had 30 percent more injuries than the industry average um and uh this this R- reveal news did like this uh deep dive investigation and they said that frantic growth constant changes and lax rules combined with the ceo who managers were afraid to cross created an atmosphere an atmosphere in which few dared to stand up for worker safety. So, okay. Now, after those 2017 reports came out, this is where it gets really slimy. Musk like went on the PR offensive and he sent an email out to everyone that worked at Tesla. And he basically said, I have the direct quote here, but I'll paraphrase. He basically said, I really care about your safety. And from now on, whenever anyone gets injured, I want to meet with that person directly. And he made that promise. I want to meet with the person who gets injured and then I will go down to their spot on the factory assembly line and I'll do their job to see how it could be improved. So that sounds great, right? But what do you think? He didn't do any of that. He didn't do anything. Of course edit. not. Like to hear something like that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> so 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 uh, the author or the the one the woman who wrote this article uh, in the Guardian, Julia Wong, called him an accountability Houdini, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> who who quote turned the fact that some of his employees were dealing with life changing injuries into glowing press about his leadership, and then a number of quotes from factory workers, um, factory worker who was injured in 2017 said he didn't meet with me current Tesla employee who was injured. That's PR. 
Never met with me. That's baloney. Quote, another one. He didn't meet with me and my incident was filed. Another injured Tesla employee. If he was going to meet with all the employees who got injured, he would be here for half the year. Exactly. Exactly. That's how you know something like that is bullshit. And it's just all PR spin like that's because, see, the thing is, and we'll get into this on the other side is like the whole like notion of the media sort of shining a light on this shit like people love that sentimentality shit so like you hear the the ceo saying stuff like oh i want to meet with the with the workers and all then yeah people get to you know the the readership the audience the the audience who can afford those subscriptions and shit they like to read that you know oh look at look at how he's you know taking you know he's taking a, a responsibility and he's being accountable and but it's bullshit. It's no way. Like you, you work in a manufacturing sector to whatever extent that, you know, that brings in money for your company or not. You are at least making cars to some extent. And so it's going to be accidents all the time. <laughs> like, and so to have him say he's going to, you know, do all this extra shit. Oh, I'm going to meet with the workers and I'm going to do their job and say, fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and the, the part that's slimy to me is like, because I'm sure there are Musk apologists out there that would that are get, that would defend him on the grounds of like, well, you know, at least he's doing that. At least he wants to. And I'm like, well, imagine like if you made such like a imagine if just any other regular person who doesn't who actually has like societal norms and standards like applied to them in their everyday life. Like imagine if like, you know your boss at, at like your middling company or whatever made some kind of promise like that and then just never did it. Or imagine if like I made some promise to my family that I was going to do something and then just, it's just like, it's gross. Just like, don't, the fact that he tried to make that into a PR opportunity is just, that's the part that the, the, the duplicity is the, is the more infuriating part than like, because I'm, yeah, it's the duplicity. I'm, I'm used to the dude who, the opportunistic dude who doesn't care about the, the welfare of the workers, but the fact that he's playing like he does is, the, is what's fucked up. And the, the, the really the fucked up part about it is if you were going to like have, you know, if worker security and safety was a priority, then shit would be in place from the gate. Like you would already have a, you know, a safe and secure environment for your workers to do their jobs. Like, that would be, you know, the bare minimum. Yeah. So like to come, so then to come and so that's where I get, you know, pissed off about shit like that because then to come on the back end when something happens and then you're like, Oh, well I care about this. like, no, you don't because if you yeah. did, then you would have, this would have been a priority from the gate. This would have been you making sure that our, you know, your workers from whatever factory are always going to be, you know, in the safest environment possible. Yeah. So. Yeah. So so what? So also, he has tried to um, to like silence and destroy the lives and reputations of whistleblowers. I sent you that one article, which I mm -hmm. thought was really fascinating. It's it's sort of like an isolated incident, but it kind of speaks to just the absurdity of it. Right. So basically, long, really long story, as as short as I can make it. Like whistleblower at the Giga factory in Nevada, I think, which is the gigantic fucking Tesla factory, and in 2018, I guess. Um, there was like all this waste, like all this scrap metal, because apparently it was kind of like a wild west environment out there, mm -hmm. like this gigantic factory and like sh people were just going nuts, I guess. Like it wasn't really well organized, but 
there was all these like there's all these like wasted materials just like lying around. And this one employee who like actually cared about the company doing well, otherwise why would he complain? He complains to his managers. He sends an email to Elon Musk personally being like, this is like millions of dollars of, of just scrap metal that we're just wasting. No one listens to him. So he goes to uh, what publication was it? I forget. I think it was a uh, business insider. And he kind of blows the whistle anonymously. And he says, Tesla is just wasting all this shit. Mm-hmm. Like 40% of the raw materials at the Gigafactory are just, oh, it's, the Gigafactory is the battery plant for the Teslas. We're just wasting all this shit. So he was really coming from a place of like, I want this company that I work for to be like more resourceful, like to be better. So, um, so, 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 so Musk dispatches this whole team of investigators to find out who leaked this information. Turns about, turns out to be this dude, 40 year old dude named Martin Tripp, assembly line worker. Musk, he works on the assembly line, right? So, you know, inference, whatever you want about what this dude probably made. Elon Musk and Tesla sued this dude for $167 million in damages. (laughs) And they tapped his phone. They interrogated him. They called the local sheriff's office and reported an anonymous tip on him that he was planning an active shooting at the Gigafactory. Wow. So, and then subsequently, uh, the security manager at the Gigafactory came forward to the SEC and was like, this dude, Elon, is wiling the fuck out. Wow. So basically... Elon Musk is a vindictive asshole who set out to destroy this dude, the reputation of this dude, just because he had the audacity to be like, I think we can be doing this better. And then last thing, obviously, which I mentioned at the outset, he's, you know, this fucking spoiled brat who has no idea who the the concept of sacrificing for the common good is wholly foreign and he's threatening or i guess he has won the the fight the legal battle to restart the tesla factory in california despite the stay-at-home order Mm. so so and couple that knowledge with the fact or couple that with the knowledge that the taxpayer foots five billion of the fucking tesla bill now he's like fighting to have tesla workers come back to work in a, a potentially unsafe environment due to the coronavirus so in sum Elon Musk is not this fucking self-made genius innovator who's actually interested in solving any of the problems he purports to care about. He's a spoiled, vindictive, opportunistic brat who has been consistent lucky, has always gotten his way, and is now claiming fascism because he has no idea what it is to sacrifice for the common good. Mic drop. (laughs) And and, and these mother – and he has fucking – scores of people who just idolize this dude as the supposed innovator. And I'm like, how is that possible? How the fuck is that possible? I hate, I hate, I hate bro. I hate him. Yeah, no, it's, I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm more so, um, discouraged by the, the adulation that he, that yeah. he receives. Um, yeah. him, Bezos, uh, yeah, all, it's all of them. All of them sicken me. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's the that's the Musk deep dive. And oh, I've I've got an extensive list of sources, which I will include in the show. It's going to be mad <laughs> sources, mad sources for all that. Fire. Um. All right. So let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about Noam Chomsky in the media. Cool. 
Okay, welcome back to the Now That You Mentioned It podcast. Hey guys, <laughs> yeah, I was really care, care, care to fucking welcome people. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> okay, this is the part of the show where we say uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Yeah, follow us on Instagram. Rate us um, on rate iTunes. us on iTunes. Leave us a nice review. Yeah, uh, email us and uh, everything is at NTY my pod, including uh, that, that's Instagram and Twitter. Um. We're available on Spotify, mm-hmm. Apple, mm-hmm. Amazon Play. No, that's Google, Google Play. Uh, Amazon something. We're um, what's the Twitch? Other one? I think. Are we on Twitch or Stitcher? Stitcher. That's what I was thinking. About. Twitch is something yeah. else. Twitch is something. We're else. on Stitcher. Yeah. 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 So wherever you uh, wherever you prefer to get your podcasts, we're there. Yeah, we'll be there soon. We're going to be on YouTube too. I know. Fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, do all that. Review us, rate us at NTY my pod, email us and share us with your your friends. And enemies. <laughs> <laughs> share with everyone. We don't Yo, the idea of like the idea of having like for real like declared enemies is hilarious. Oh, it is. An arch nemesis type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like we're yeah. yeah. I need I need that. All right. So Main seg of the show, we are talking about the Noam Chomsky and Herman. What's what's the other Edward, author's name? Edward Herman. Herm Edward Herman book, Manufacturing Consent, about the media, where they basically put forward the idea of the media as a propaganda machine. Mm-hmm. Um, published in nineteen eighty. Three. Three? Not published in 1983. Um, what did you think of it, Kev? It's required reading. Um, yeah, if you really want to have a critical view of mass media, news media in particular, then yeah, this is definitely this is definitely required reading. Yeah, so maybe we can just quickly uh, outline the arguments they put forward and then get into some like bigger picture questions, mm-hmm. questions about how their theory holds up, uh, considerations about differences between it was writ- when, when uh, this book was written versus what's going on now, et cetera, et cetera. So basically they say they define mass media as a system for communicating messages and symbols to the general populace. Uh, it's the media's function to amuse, entertain, and inform and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society. Now, their (laughs) fundamental contention is that in a world where there's a ton of concentrated wealth and a bunch of conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role, there's going to have to be systematic propaganda. Um, So basically – the way I try to put it into my own words to understand it is that they're putting forth a model of the media. Mm-hmm. They're saying we can understand the media better as a propaganda model. Right. Um, and they, and they assess the effects of wealth and power on the mass on, on mass media. And importantly, especially for me, they, they conceive of the propaganda model, not as this sort of intentional, deliberate conspiracy exactly. or cabal, but rather as a set of filters. Right. 
that that quote filter out the news fit to print marginalize dissent and allow the government and dominant private interests to get their messages across to the public so basically you can think of about it as like there's raw data out there there really is raw data out there but then given that there's all this concentrated wealth um and all these institutionalized incentives, that raw data has to pass through this series of filters and people within these institutions act according to those incentives. And so what comes out and what is presented to the public via the mass media is not the raw data. Rather, it's this sort of sanitized product that's been passed through this, these these successive filters. Right. Is that the best way? That's how I – Oh, no, no. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so they say that – Quote, the raw material of news must pass through filters, leaving only the cleansed residue fit to print. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, the filters, fix the premises of discourse and interpretation and the definition of what is newsworthy in the first place. Um, So essentially these these filters are are essentially, you know, bracketing off what is acceptable discourse. Exactly. And so you can have – whatever type of debate and, and squabbles within the confines of that of the of that discourse, of the parameters of that discourse, and then sort of everything else, everything that's critical, um, adversarial in any type of way, is on the periphery and is delegitimized, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so they they put forward five filters in the first chapter of the book. Um and one of them is the uh, sort of the pernicious salience of uh, anti-communism. I mean, again, this book was written in 1983. I actually didn't dive deep into that part. I focus mostly on the first four in terms of what I want to like uh, mm-hmm. capture here mm-hmm. on the pod. But so the first one, um, the first filter that news has to pass through is the size, ownership, and profit orientation of the, of the mass media. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting how they – talked about the industrialization of the press. So yeah, so 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 from the jump they're saying uh, as the press got industrialized in the 19th century, just the cost of literally buying the shit was like just skyrocketed. Right. So that that automatically is going to have a filtering effect of who is able to disseminate the news like that's it. You're going to need a lot of capital from the jump um and sort of um ownership kind of like coagulates um, in the mass media where a very, very small number of people actually end up owning a huge swath of the mass right, media. Right. Um, and then and then these huge multinational media corporations take on as consultants and advisors people from banks, people from uh, other non-media corporations, and mm-hmm. those people sit on their boards. So it's only natural to conclude from that that they're going to have other interests other than just reporting the news. Right. These other people are going to set the debates. They want to have good relationships with their banks that are giving them loans. They want to, ha- and then we'll get into the advertising thing. Um, and like the, just, just straight up, just the profit orientation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like in a market system, the news has to make money. And so it becomes ever more important to just focus solely on the bottom line. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the most important takeaway from this part, this filter. Yeah. It's the infotainment element of it, which is incentivized by the fact that in order for these for these companies to to operate, for them to even turn a profit is um, is contingent upon them to entertain 
their audience enough to keep bringing those those uh, readers or, or viewers back in that then is able to, you know, keep ad money flowing in for them as well. So it's like, yeah, it, the from the outset, you sort of see that that it's not, you know, some grand conspiracy like cats are, you know, in the back sort of dictating what the national discourse is going to be. But it's the system itself dictates what the national discourse is going to be based primarily on how it's structured. Like if you have bank execs and, you know, other oil execs and pharma uh, execs and shit like that sitting on the boards of all these uh, media companies. And really, you can get into the consolidation of all the media companies with the 96 Telecommunications Act and where, you know, when they wrote this, it was still about, what, 20 something companies or whatever. By 96, it was only six, I believe. So you talk like so now you have just a hyper concentration of wealth influence and the means to dictate discourse. Yep, so. yep. It's straight up just these people. They have the, these media companies have to have relationships with banks and big other big business, and those people sit on the board and they're the shareholders. And so, the media companies are going to be more and more oriented towards maximizing value for their shareholders. Right. And if that means, and so you have to take whatever action is necessary to be, you know, a responsible like what is it like to fulfill your fiduciary responsibility mm-hmm. to the board, you have to do whatever the fuck it takes to right. maximize profitability for the shareholders. Right. That's it. It's not, yeah, again, it's not like a cabal where they're like, we're going to silence exactly. this person. Exactly. You know, exactly. Like, so, so let's get into the advertising. This is the part that I really fuck with. So, so before advertising uh, became prominent, well, I should say advertising is the second filter that the news has to pass. Mm-hmm. So, before advertising, the price of a newspaper had to reflect the cost of production. And for a lot of people, they're going to be like, yeah, duh, this is just how I just like explaining it because I'm so not good at uh, conceptualizing like economic shit that I just like to talk it out. So, yeah, before before advertising, the price of a newspaper had to reflect the, the, the cost of making that newspaper. So, like, if it cost five bucks for me to sl- slap together this newspaper, I'd charge it for six dollars or whatever. Right. Um but the point is that at that time, the the cost of the paper w- was fundamentally related to the amount of money it actually took to produce it. But as advertising became more salient, papers that could get ads could now afford to lower the price right. for the consumer, so to below the production cost because they're getting that extra cash flow from the advertisers. So now, if there are two newspaper companies and they have roughly the same production costs, but one of them is getting cash from the advertisers, homeboy that's getting the extra advertising advertising money uh doesn't need to make up production costs uh he doesn't need to reflect the production cost that the consumer pays because he's getting that extra bread so papers that lack in that advertising money were at a serious advantage because they'd have higher prices straight up they'd have higher prices less extra money to invest in and improving the saleability of the newspaper so that the newspapers that were getting advertising from the jump could invest in making the newspaper look prettier lowering Mm -hmm. the cost getting more features get call all that shit that just makes it more saleable right um (laughs) 
And and here's this quote. Here's this quote from uh, Chomsky and Herman. They say, for this reason, an advertising-based system will tend to drive out of existence or into marginality the media companies and types that depend on revenue from sales alone. With advertising, the free market does not yield a neutral system in which final buyer choice survives. The advertiser's choice influences the advertiser's choices influence media prosperity and survival. So again, makes makes total right. sense to me. And then, and then, I mean, maybe you want to get into like how the advertisers seem to become the ones who are dictating the choices on. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, so I think with with the with the way that advertisers sort of dictate the discourse or dictate what is news. Um, I think when they wrote this in 83, the way that mass media um, operated obviously still showed the same shit that we're seeing today. I think today though, like the way that everything has just like the, the wealth has been calcified in such a way that, there is no sort of, there's no uh, intermediary, like how, how they pointed out the, you know, uh, these shadow companies in a sense, like, oh, this this corporation, you know, is really a, uh, a subsidiary of this larger, you know, General Electric or some shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. Now you just have Jeff Bezos outright owns the Washington Post, right? right. And so it's like, so then you think about, so what does the Washington Post do in terms of, you know, coverage on um, on manufacturing uh, accidents in the in Amazon factories? What about I mean, in uh, warehouses, rather? Um, what about, you know, issues with uh, with Amazon and the cloud technology that they have and, and that being, you know, coupled with the uh, with the national security state like shit like that isn't you know written about in the washington post for obvious reasons because yeah jeff bezos owns the washington post so it's like yep. the the filters today are almost erased because now it's just out it's just outright like look at bloomberg he has his own fucking media shit so yeah when he was running for uh president they didn't have any type of critical coverage of the Bloomberg campaign, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like this shit is it's on a it's on steroids today. <laughs> the way that consent is manufactured. Yeah, I wanna we sh- I wanna put a like a stop in that, and we'll come back to that because I have a question about like how the internet has mm-hmm. changed things or maybe not changed things. Mm-hmm. But well, let's get through the filters, and then I wanna ask I wanna ask you that question. Um, but just. As far as the uh, the advertising shit, what I thought was so fucking fascinating and totally emblematic of what they're talking about here is that uh, the dynamic of like advertising squeezing out of existence or into marginality, like they say, um, newspapers that can't get advertising played out. That dynamic played out in the UK right after World War II. So um, there was a newspaper that died in the UK in 1964, I believe. It was called the Daily Herald. Mm-hmm. And it was like this sort of working class oriented paper supportive of the Labour Party. And it had a readership of like four and a half million people, right. which was more than double any of its more establishment competitors. Um, but it died because it couldn't get advertising because the advertisers saw that its readership had had less – 
buying power. Mm-hmm. They were more working class, had less means to buy shit. So the idea that adver- uh, the mass media is democratic because it's in the it's in the interest or it's in the game of just trying to get the most eyes on shit. I just want to get the widest audience. That's not totally true. Mm-hmm. Mass media is trying to get the audience that has the most bas- buying power so they can pitch their markets to advertising to companies that will advertise. Right. Um, Yeah. Basically the advertisers are the ones that buy and pay for the fucking programs. So in this like media landscape where companies have to compete for advertising dollars, the ones that cater their programming to the advertisers are going to get the most advertising. Yeah. So he said, so Um, they, they say in short, they, uh, Herman and, and Chomsky say, in short, the mass media are interested in attracting audiences with buying power, not audiences per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is affluent audiences that spark advertiser interest today, as in, as in the 19th century. The idea that the drive for large audiences makes the mass media, quote, democratic, thus suffers mm-hmm. from the initial weakness that its political analog is a voting system weighted by income. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you... That your your entire democracy is a class based democracy. Right. So, just the, the the very fact that these advertisers are looking specifically for the people who have means, who have disposable yeah. income, and, and everything who can consume. And if you don't have that, if you're if like you said, if your readership is is working class, paycheck to paycheck type people, then you aren't of much interest <laughs> to. Yep. To these ad come to the and I love how the, I love how the, uh, Chomsky and, and Herman talk about how they these companies have these whole staffs which are there to just tell the advertisers why their programming is going to best suit the advertisers' exactly. needs. Exactly. Um, and so it just it's only natural to to like to know or to notice that the advertisers' needs are gonna rank highly in mm-hmm. what the ma- these mass media companies are concerned about. And uh, this was crazy to me. A gain or loss of one percentage point in the Nielsen ratings can result in anywhere. Oh, yeah. 80 to 10, 80 to 100, 80 to 100 million, million in advertising revenue. Right. And that was in 83. Right. So I wonder what the fuck it is now. Yeah. It's like, so the stakes for these networks and the advertisers are fucking huge. Right. Which is why it's like when it comes to political debates, when it comes to particular issues or whatever the case may be, people aren't going to risk those ad dollars getting fucked up by, you know, having some sort of adversarial voice on for the sake of, you know, democracy or whatever. Like, (laughs) it's just not worth it. (laughs) Yeah. And then so the next filter is uh, the mass media's news sources. Mm -hmm. Um. And this I took to be basically the, the the problem is that it would be so unwieldy and cost ineffective to actually oh shit um, to actually have this gigantic team of journalists that are out there actually p- getting the raw data of the news. You, th- these giant news companies, which are in and of themselves bureaucracies, have to rely on other bureaucracies to to extract digestible news nuggets for them. Mm-hmm. It would be way too cumbersome to actually, you know, be doing that like that hard work. They, these these mass media companies have to rely on the statements and the and the 
the knowledge accrual or whatever you want to call it of other bureaucracies, Mm -hmm. which is sort of just like this, you know, again, the news is passing through another filter. Right. Yeah. It's just, to me, this, this part was fascinating, but it was like, you could kind of reduce it to the idea that again, you're not getting the raw thing. You're getting something that has already been filtered. Right. And, and that, that goes also into the sort of, uh, right thinking personnel so in in terms of the experts right in terms of sources and so like when we you know look at the new you turn on the news today turn on cnn turn on msnbc turn on fox like if if it's some you know foreign policy issue they're gonna have nothing but fucking cia ex-cia agents ex-military generals and you know and these are the sources these are the people who are framing the foreign policy discussion right right and and so now you have the mass media you have the masses consuming a you know neocon foreign policy disposition just by oh these are the experts this is you know it's been filtered in a way so that these are the experts these are the people who we listen to and and who we take as legitimate and reliable yeah and i think the reason for that is that because like well a it's like these news sources like the giant governmental bureaucracies the the corporations that you know give statements to the press and stuff like that they are literally the ones that are like supplying the fix for the news like like so they have like inordinate influence in terms of you know shaping how the news gets you know put on display (laughs) really and and then so go ahead ahead, ahead. so yeah so like the in chomsky's like sort of propaganda model of the news media like these big bureaucracies and institutions would be threatened were there credible experts out there that had dissenting viewpoints. But so how do these institutions um, and bureaucracies compensate for that? Well, they co-opt the experts, like you were saying. They hire them as consultants. Um, they they fund their research. They hire them directly. And, they, and, and then so they've sort of co-opted the experts to be part of more of – their mode of thinking as opposed to having these outlier like sort of dissident opinions out there you can also look at the media as you know essentially as stenographers like for you know um the pentagon and and you know the national security state and shit like that right like just just as an example um having like like the fact that like you see you see the conflict in the Middle East, the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, yet we're gonna have the people who drove us into Iraq on as the experts to talk about how we should operate and move in terms of, of Iran and shit. Like it is that type of shit is where it's like, okay, now you guys are no longer, you know, offering real news and real commentary on these issues you're just purely stenographers because these are just you know these quote-unquote experts are just you know extensions of the foreign policy bureaucracy and you know for the pharmaceutical bureaucracy and so on and so forth so it's just like the the whole notion of like sources and, and 
what sources are reliable and shit like that is just completely warped by the accessibility yeah. of those sources. So the fact that you could, you know, always see CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, no matter where you're at in the country, as opposed to, you know, free speech TV that a lot of people don't have and aren't, you know, up on or some shit like that, then yeah, it, you're, the masses are then going to deem the MSNBC shit and all that is more reliable because it's more accessible and they, you know, and they, they've been able to, you know, really consume that brand like that as yeah. opposed to the adversarial journalists and, and media outlets out there that are looked upon like, mm, you guys aren't in line with the shit, with the mainstream discourse like they are over here. Mm-hmm. So, so something must be off with, with y'all yeah. shit. <laughs> so, okay. So then they talk about flack, but I kind of want to get to some questions that I want to throw at you. Um, so I wonder what, tell me what you think of this. I wonder what Chomsky would say about this. Cause this is really the only part that I, it's not even that I'm pushing back. I would just be curious to see what Chomsky would say about this. So if you just read what we read, it seems like there would be a sort of a flattening of distinctions between an organization like the New York times versus Fox. And here's my, and I, so I maybe I'm kind of like doing a straw man thing of Chomsky, but I'm just curious to see what you think of this and maybe what you can like parrot what Chomsky would say. But this, the difference for me between a, like an organization like Fox and like the New York Times, obviously these uh, filters and incentives are in, that Chomsky talked about are in place for both of them and both of them deal with them to whatever extent that they do. But the, the salient difference is that the New York Times actually like – cares about its reputation as being a purveyor of facts as best as they know them. And the evidence for that is that if they publish something and then it turns out that that was wrong, the next day you'll see a retraction. Like they are actually in the business of trying to get to the truth as as best they can within the parameters that Chomsky has talked about, obviously. Mm. Fox to me is not in the business of that. Like the New York Times is – like that's the difference. Like the New York Times gets something wrong. The next day you're going to see we fucked up. In this earlier article, we said this. That was proven to be wrong. The people that work at the New York Times, yes, they operate to all these incentives. But they're all like high caliber journalists that have journalistic ethics. A place like Fox to me is not even really in the game of journalism. But I, I, I was – I guess – so I don't know. I, I guess for me, I, I won't speak for – for Chomsky, but I guess for me, I would say that that could be a difference, but that difference is ultimately cosmetic insofar as what the New York Times is, you know, reporting and everything like that, right? Let's say we can use the war. We can use the war example again. Okay. Um, the New York Times will, will report and have some decent reporting about, you know, let's say uh, something that's going on in Iran. Right. And Fox News will come with their, you know, far right neocon type shit about the same conflict. Right. Ultimately, the objective, though, is that the New York Times isn't anti-war. 
New York Times is an anti-imperialist in terms of how they in, in terms of the parameters through which these journalists that work for that um, for that outlet are able to discuss what's going on. And so ultimately, it's the same. It's sort of like the, the lesser of two evils thing. But the, the most evil is always dragging the other shit with it. So as far right as Fox News is, the New York Times isn't adversarial in terms of going further to the left and in exposing these, you know, larger issues. They're just sort of sanitizing it a little bit more than what the the sort of right wing neocon outlets like the Fox News, the Breitbart's, the that the Daily Caller, that type of shit. So and so I, so I, I'm just saying, like, I would think that that, yeah, that it, it's it's not so much that the New York Times um, are like deliberately, you know. How do I want to say it? I really I, I think that like the New York Times is doing like you said, is doing work to the best of their ability. But but the fact that you have such that the that the sort of outlet of record, what do what do they call the New York Times? The the newspaper yeah. of record. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. the fact that the newspaper of record is so sanitized in what it in what it ultimately in how it's framing these these issues and stories and shit is still detrimental to the masses. And then you also got to think about the readership too. Like, well, yeah, that's a whole other right, it, right. And, and they, and they, they and know exactly who they're reading. Exactly, and then that's the and then that's that's also the split with with them. So, like, yeah, I, I I would say that like most media conglomerates, whether you're you know more liberal or more conservative, regardless, I think are more or less working for the same ends. I think that it's when you get, when you get outside of, when you get outside of that paradigm, because if, if I'm working for, because you look at somebody like Chris Hedges, who worked for the New York Times, he was the war correspondent for years or whatever. But the moment that he started writing about the Iraq war and how that was detrimental to America and everything like that, the New York Times silenced him, fired him, and it was like, no, because this isn't this doesn't vibe with with the discourse that we're trying to push in this particular issue on on this particular issue. So in cases like that, it's like, I mean, yeah, you, you have yeah. to you have to look at them like they're still operating on the same along the same lines as the far right neocon shit. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, well, yeah, definitely. As far as the New York Times, like, it's especially during this like coronavirus shit. It's so obvious that they know so well their readership because all of the shit is like, like twelve ways to bake artisanal bread at home right, while right. you're like working from home. So it's like, of course, like right. they're trying to cater to that audience. I guess maybe part of it for me is that maybe it's just the fact that Fox News to me is so beyond the pale. Where to use your war example. Uh, yes, like the New York Times, the New York Times, the New York Times is not going to fundamentally get outside of like the 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 constraints of the discourse that have been set. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say, you know, I mean, to take the Iraq example, like 
the New York Times would be upfront about the fact that like the whole like weapons of mass destruction thing that like Bush was fucking around with mm-hmm. that. Fox is going to parrot Bush and insist that that was right. Same with this Trump thing. Like, like uh, same with this Obama gate shit, right? The difference to me, and maybe again, it just comes back to the fact that Fox is so fucking beyond. It's like, it's like Fox is going to treat Obama gate as like, a real thing. New York Times is going to do the responsible thing and be like, yeah, Trump is talking about Obamagate. There's nothing not, – none of these accusations are founded, blah, this and this and this. So to me, it's sort of like – But then I was saying – but then I would have to push back because look at uh, like look at all the shit that happened under Obama that the New York Times did not cover. Like the New York Times wasn't covering the fact that Obama was quote unquote the, de- the deporter in chief. Like New York Times wasn't covering Obama's – like the mass media is is partisan. Like your readership, but the fact that the New York Times knows that its readership is, you know, middle upper class, uh, you know, people of means. The fact, like, so they're gonna cater to to those, you know, political leanings. And when Obama was doing a bunch of wild shit, which is what every president. I mean, you, you're the president of the United States. This is an empire. So naturally, if you're the president, you're the manager of an empire, period. And so it's a lot of shit that Obama did that the New York Times did not cover critically in in the same way that they're critical of Trump. And it's, it's all of this shit is partisan in that in that regard. So, yeah, but I guess the difference would be like the difference would be that um, New York Times did, wouldn't cover that shit to the same extent or but they wouldn't deny but not covering but not covering it is is a form of denial <laughs> i mean because how can you sit here and in 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 chastise fox news for you know covering the shit about obama or whatever um if it's true, I'm not. I'm not trusting anyone. If it's true, but I'm not trusting anyone. But I'm saying, true. but I'm saying, like the way in which I, I think, like the way that like a Fox News or like far right media in general comes off, I think is sort of unsettling for many people, and I think that's what gets people off on it, as opposed to like the more, you know, the more refined liberal media that I think plays to people's sensibilities in a way where you can say some shit in the New York times and people think, you know, it's all good, but they are, they aren't covering the same, they aren't covering the shit that the liberals do in the same, you know, with the same sort of, you know, rigor and, and criticality that they would, you know, a right wing person in this, in the same way that, you know, that, that goes for people on the right, chastising people on the left like it or on the in the uh, liberal side i won't say the left but so i I just think like these these major companies these major mass media companies are both doing the same type of thing like regardless it's it's all partisan to me do you do you you don't think fox is further afield of reality than new york times yeah but i my thing my thing isn't so much that and, and it's really well, and that's difficult to say because it's it's the fact that the New York Times 
is more deliberate about what they choose not to cover and how they choose not to cover certain shit that with Fox, yeah, Fox is a, is a circus or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's something entirely, but I think that it's actually more insidious and pernicious that the New York times doesn't cover shit. And it comes off as though they're the, you know, one's giving you a more critical view of what's going on. And I think the fact that yeah. you have people think like, oh, I read the New York Times, so therefore I'm, in, I'm more informed than the person who, you know, watches Fox, I think is fundamentally misunderstanding how mass media, especially in a hyper-partisan uh, country like the United States and how these, these, you know, media companies operate within that partisan framework, I, I think that you're like, completely missing the point <laughs> if you think that oh i'm i'm more informed because i read the new york times than the person who reads fox or oh, of fox. course yeah 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 no no argument from me on that i guess well and this is sort of branching off something from what you said but um to me this is this was sort of and then i want we can stop talking about this part but like um to me this sort of this sort of dynamic gets crystallized when like uh, the um, the uh, the sexual assault allegation of Joe Biden first came out. Um, a lot of people I saw on Twitter and YouTube were saying the liberal media is covering this up. It's a it's a deliberate cover up. It's a conspiracy. Blahdy blahdy blah blase blase whatever whatever. Then it came out like a week later, a front page piece with in depth reporting by the New York Times, and the reason that there wasn't any any notice from the New York Times on that shit right when the allegation came out is because they were doing the actual journalistic work of verifying sources, talking to the woman who made the accusation, talking to women who she told. Like, and so all these people got off all this like kind of conspiracy, fuck the establishment type shit. It's a cover up type shit. When it's like, no, they were actually doing journalism. Like, I, like there, I, I still believe that there is journalism to be done. I'm not in this sort of totally nihilistic. Oh, landscape. no, no. I, I believe in, I believe in independent journalism. Like I think independent journalism, whether you're on the left or the right, I think is more accurate and more informative than any type of like mass media conglomerate information that you're going to get now to the, to the New York times shit. And with them, like, they do good work at times. Like, you know, I was talking about the Washington Post. The Washington Post did, um, and I kind of want to get into this when we talk about the worthy and unworthy victims, but uh, the Washington Post did, like, this, they had this database going about, like, all the police killings or whatever. And, you know, you could go there and you could literally, like, look at all this sort of just demographics and shit with like that was dope you know and that was that was a, a needed resource or whatever um so yeah i'm not on the i'm not in the in the uh on that side where it's like the mainstream media just has zero value or whatever of course you can they have to do good work at some point to reinforce their legitimacy so they're gonna give you something you know what i'm saying at some point it's just you have to look at that shit in in start to pick out and parse out what the actual narratives and shit that they're pushing and really look at that and then sort of, you know, start dissecting the news that you get from them and, and being critical in that way. But you're yeah. just, you know, watching that shit and it's like, oh, I watch MSNBC. So whatever the fuck I get from MSNBC is right. 
and everything, right? Yeah, then yeah. you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah, and I think what is maybe not the most valuable thing, but really valuable thing about reading Chomsky is that it just gives you another framework with which to look at the, right. this stuff critically. Right. Um, all right, so let's get into the uh, the worthy versus unworthy victims. Why don't can, will you explain that uh, that distinction, that terminology from Chomsky and Herman, and then I got a question for you. About yeah, it. so basically, um, the worthy and unworthy victims is just the ways that the news media covers particular you know, let's say atrocities associated with, with certain groups and, and people and shit. So for for the mass media to cover, to deem a, a victim worthy would normally be someone that that particular state or... or and wor- we mean worthy of news worthy coverage. Worthy of news right? coverage, yeah. yeah worthy yeah, of news yeah. coverage. Um, that they would be worthy, they're, they're deemed worthy if the state, or the, the power players, rather, we'll just say to make it more general, don't have a hand in that person or group's victimhood. So the he, they talk about, you know, the um, the atrocities in East Timor at the hands of the Indonesian uh, government that went in there, military that went in there and invaded. And you didn't hear, you know, shit about that in the U.S. media for the most part because the U.S. was backing the Indonesian government in this in this um, takeover. Right, versus like if, if an atrocity happens in a country that the United States is in an oppositional relationship to, you're going to hear a bunch of shit about to that. Make, to make that right. oppositional power look bad. Right, like you hear, yeah, you hear yeah. so much shit about Syria or whatever, and all you know, because the U.S. has no dealings with Syria. But then, on the other hand, you don't hear anything about the atrocities that Saudi Arabia, you know, is dishing out to Yemen and shit like that, because the U.S. is in fucking bed with Saudi Arabia. So that would be yeah. the that's that's basically how that the worthy and unworthy yeah, victim and- framework. Yeah, and they cited a lot of stuff that was, um, again, more germane to a discussion taking place within the framework of like a Cold War, like mm-hmm. a Cold War framework. Um, my question to you was that, so yeah, the, the unworthy versus worthy, if it's a victim of a regime, the United States itself, or a, like a, a proxy country backed by the United States, you're not going to hear a lot about it versus, you know, a country that was part of the USSR, mm-hmm. atrocity goes down there, you're going to hear yeah, about yeah. how fucking corrupt and how awful the, right. the, the government is there. I, how do you think that dynamic has held up today? How do you see that playing out today? Um, I look at it, well, I mean, it's, it's yeah, look at Saudi Arabia and, and Yemen, and you can, we could probably count how many stories <laughs> that have been written about that on your hands. Um, as opposed to like the, you know, Assad in, in Syria's gassing his own people. And, you know, it was thousands of fucking articles written about that. So, I mean, yeah. there's that, that's the dynamic in that, in that regard. But then I also look at it like domestically. So like, and then you can kind of, you can also kind of flip it too, because like, because this is talking about newsworthiness like you're worthy or unworthy of, of, of news coverage. I think of like unarmed black men being shot and, and killed, you know, at nauseam is 
an interesting take on like the worthy and unworthy victim shit, right? So they're worthy victims insofar as this is news covered. Like this is newsworthy, these these stories or whatever. And it's, you know, a bunch of them have been popping up uh, again here lately. But I think about how black men, unarmed black men in particular, are, you know, seen as newsworthy victims, but are unworthy of sympathy, the benefit of the doubt and all of this sort of thing, right? They're unworthy of the righteous indignation of being victims of state sanctioned violence or whatever. But then what's the, what's really crazy is unarmed poor white men (laughs) are deemed as unworthy victims in general, because you never hear about them getting killed. And if going back to my point about the Washington Post and that database, there's a lot of white men killed by the police that you just do not hear about. But and it's, you know, it's in places in the South and in the Midwest and, and shit like that. And it's like these are unworthy victims because they're poor and white. Like so it, the the way that, that that these things are framed. So it's like what's what's really going to be what's the outrage what's the what's the news uh worthiness or the engagement level for saying oh this you know this unarmed white dude from west virginia got killed or whatever like yeah it's not going to really get much of a reaction <laughs> yeah it's not yeah the outrage the outrage meter isn't going to be no, there but but you know yeah. you can stoke you can stoke you know racial flames by you know having fucking black death porn on loop and you know that's newsworthy but they aren't worthy victims black men still aren't worthy victims or even black women because you know they're obviously getting killed too so it's like the the whole thing is is warped in this new sort of digital media space (laughs) because it's just like the fact that we are able to um we're able to see all of this, like all of these, you know, police killings and vigilante uh, killings and shit like that, we're able to, you know, they, they make the news and they, they make their rounds and they become viral. But ultimately it just reinforces, you know, long held racial beliefs that, you know, black men are dangerous. Black men should, you know, they're just better off dead anyway. So, you know, the, the, the stories and shit are, are newsworthy in, in that regard. And then you just completely erase, you know, the white white men who <laughs> are getting knocked off. So, yeah, it's. Hmm. I got nothing to add to that. To <laughs> I got nothing to add to that. Fuck. Yeah, that was that was the main sort of observation I made, though, about the the worthy and unworthy victims. Because I was like, man, like it's it's crazy how these stories get covered here in the sort of narratives that they that they reinforce. And then, you know, then just the complete erasure of poor white men in the, you know, in flyover country getting knocked off. Right. You never hear about that. Yeah. This book is fucking I definitely recommend this one for sure. Yeah. It's required reading. 
definitely required. Yeah, and the chart, like the, the all the graphs and shit they sh- they have, like yeah. the, the percentage breakdowns of like the experts who were ex CIA, right? And like the all the crossover of like the me- the, the people who sit on the uh, the like the media company boards who like were ex government agency guys or bankers, right. and like right. all the percentage breakdowns is amazing. Right. And it just it shows you exactly how consent is manufactured. Like it lives up to its name or to its title rather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, check that out by manufacturing consent. And uh, yeah, well, okay, Kev, tell them what we got. What, what we got next? Also for my own edification too. Oh, we're going to be talking. So the thing with manufacturing consent was, and Herman and um, Chomsky made it explicit, which is this book wasn't to show you what the effects of mass media have on the individual. It's just to show you a sort of outline of the political economy of mass media. So next week, we'll be getting into the shit on a more individual level. Yes. Happened to some Kierkegaard. Yep. Okay. Fire. Yeah. So. All right. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Yeah. Peace. Mention it. Mention it. Mention it. Yeah.